Mike, I think we definitely topped our uh, our April Fool's joke episode from last year, eh? We should have probably done a Xbox was cool podcast, right? We should have. I feel like that's what people expected, though. But like, Mike, the Xbox wasn't cool. <laughs> GameCube. Over 600 games you've never heard of. GameCube. The product of what happens when you think inside the box. Bye bye. See you later. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to episode 91 of the GameCube Was Cool podcast. New episode every Thursday on all the major podcast services. You can support the show by going to patreon.com slash thegamecubewascool. All patrons get the show ad-free and a little early. Thank you to everybody over there. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. We are at the GameCube Pod, And join the weekly conversation on our Discord channel, The GameCube Was Cool. Share us with your friends and family. Tell Laura Croft, Neil says hi. Thank you so much for the support, and we will see you next week. Oh, shit. Dude, the fire alarm just went off. I'm really sorry. I knew that was going to happen today. Oh, oh God. Oh, no. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I didn't think it was going to happen. I said it was going to happen. I, I, I predicted no many times. and Yeah, we, we were doing really well there. We were doing so well, but uh, almost We're so made close it to the end. <laughs> so close. I had a feeling that was going to happen. Mike, why don't you let the listeners know what they can expect next week on episode 90 of the GameCube is Cool podcast. Next week on episode 90, Neil, we have Paper Mario and the Thousand Year Door. I'm really excited to talk about Paper Mario for the first time ever on this podcast, which is going to be mm-hmm. really cool. Uh, and, you know, we're going to have some special guests, Neil. Possibly uh, Shigeru Miyamoto, Charles Martinet, the voice wow. of, of Mario, of course, Doug Bowser, the current Nintendo president. All these guys, they reached out to us, Neil. Wow, that's crazy. Now, I, I I have a hard time believing that they're all going to find time, so we should probably have a couple of backup callers, just in case they're busy. Good idea, good idea. Yeah, yeah, not bad. So, Mike, we have talked a ton about Prince of Persia and Tomb Raider and also Pitfall today, but the, the question still remains, what do you want to see come out of these franchises on Nintendo hardware? It's been a long time since we've seen Prince of Persia on Switch, like a new Prince of Persia game. It's been, I don't think we've even had a new Tomb Raider game on any Nintendo hardware in a little while. Do, do you see these games coming back anytime in the future? You didn't say Pitfall, Neil. Well, yeah, I think we, I think we established what's going to happen there. But I mentioned Pitfall briefly. <laughs> but yeah, I I think I think Tomb Raider probably has the 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 highest chance of coming back in some kind of trilogy. Actually, no, sorry, um, Prince of Persia for sure. I think uh, I think they even tease the fact that they will be putting the new Sands of Time remake on the Switch at some point. So. That will yeah. be the the first thing we probably will get from from these franchises, and we probably will eventually get a Tomb Raider collection. I could see the the, the trilogy that had recently come out from uh, twenty thirteen to twenty eighteen, uh, just the way that the Switch has been putting stuff out in these you know kind of legacy mm-hmm. trilogies. I can definitely see them putting uh, the Tomb Raider trilogy on there. Did they not tease that, or was that not announced? Like, I feel like when the Switch first came out, I remember that summer, or that spring, I guess it was, seeing the upcoming games. It was one of the first times in, like, five years it felt like Nintendo had a plan for their for their release dates. And it was around the time when, like, oh, wow, what's this ARMS going to be? And it was, you know, R- Rabbids Kingdom Battle was coming out, and, like, 
fast racing RMX was coming out. Like they just had that splash screen of like the next eight months. For some reason, I remember the rise of Tomb Raider being on there. I thought that that was announced for Switch, but I guess it, it never came out. Maybe I'm just thinking of that Instagram page, the one that make a lot of mock-ups for uh, Nintendo games, like Switch games mm. and, and Rise of Tomb Raider and Rise of Tomb Raider might have been on there. But yeah, I, I think that that would be a perfect game for Switch. I would love to have it on the go. Uh, but I've already played it, so I guess that I, I'm not really missing out on anything. I would like a new game in the Tomb Raider series to be on Switch. I think that that would be yeah. really cool. Um, and yeah, the Tomb... And yeah, the Prince of Persia remake, the Sands of Time remake, I think that's a perfect choice to put on on Switch. I We haven't seen gameplay yet, so we don't know exactly what it's going to look like, if it is going to be like what, what Capcom is doing with Resident Evil and completely remaking it from the ground up in a fully new engine, or are they just making it like a remastered, still keeping it with that old school art style kind of game, like what I think about with like Crash Bandicoot and Spyro. It's not going for full realism like some of these other big Ubisoft games are. I kind of hope that they go back, Ubisoft go back to the a game that has an art style to it. You know, mm. it's not just always trying to be a Tom Clancy game or a Far Cry game where you're always set in reality. I'd like them to go back to the, uh, what was that game that they did? The, the Rayman games yep. or the Child of Light games, games that have a bit more art style to them. And I think Prince of Persia is a great choice for that. And it would fit perfectly on Switch. I think that is where they're going with with that too, Neil. So I think from what I've mm-hmm. seen, so I think you you should be in luck in terms of uh, the, the graphic style and the, art, the artistic style that will be going for the remake whenever it comes out probably for the 20th anniversary that would be nice so mike uh with all of that said and done what games do you recommend the folks out there pick up from the list of games that we talked about today we've talked about tomb raider the prince of persia mm-hmm. games pitfall do any of these games stand out to you well not pitfall that's for no, sure no, no. but <laughs> <laughs> but uh i mean tomb raider legend like we said many times already it's one of, it's basically saved the franchise it's a fantastic game mm-hmm. if you're interested in tomb raider at all definitely recommend that you try and pick it up uh prince of persia uh i mean three definitely very good games i think the best for sure is sands of time like that it's pretty hard to ever beat that Mm -hmm. and obviously that's why they're doing a remake of it yeah exactly i i 100 agree with that i love the that we finally got a tomb raider game on a nintendo console like after Mm -hmm. years of being an n64 fan and knowing that playstation fans had Laura Croft with her with her big triangle boobs. Uh, we <laughs> we finally got one on on GameCube, which was really neat. So yeah, definitely revitalized the series too. Um, I I still highly recommend that folks out there look into if you haven't already the new Tomb Raider trilogy on uh, on current gen hardware, specifically PlayStation Four and Xbox One. I really like those games sometimes even more than Uncharted, frankly. But the the GameCube version looks really good, and uh, yeah, uh, I would avoid Pitfall at all costs. It doesn't look like it's really <laughs> worth much. And Sands of Time. I'll definitely be picking that up at some point. It's clear to see where Ubisoft got a lot of its action, open world influences from. Like this was kind of the beginning of the Ubisoft that we know and love today. So two great games to pick up, hands down. And if you can't find any of those games anywhere, like we said earlier in the episode, highly recommend uh, Limp Biscuits, Chocolate Starfish, and the Hot Dog Flavored Water. (laughs) Such a good album. Holds up so well. Neil, that's the third time you brought up Limp Bizkit this episode. I know. I can't not. I can't not, dude. It's such a, it's such a good band. I'm so glad that they're back. The, the new Out of Style album from last year is actually a really good rap rock album. There's a reason this is getting put out on April 1st. Anyways, Neil. <laughs> Mike, before we move on to our closing statements, let's read the back of the case for Tomb Raider Legend. Sounds good. All right. 
Laura Croft is back. In a race against time, Laura must travel across the globe to unearth history's greatest weapon, a legendary artifact of such immense power it could threaten humanity's very existence. Take Laura back to the tombs with totally new moves and high-tech gadgetry in her most explosive adventure ever. This is a really cool back of the case. She looks pretty good. Uh, like, graphically, everything looks pretty nice. I mean, she, she still looks hyper-sexualized, which I'm glad that they went away from in the uh, in the new games. But still, it's a good back of the case. Yeah, the, even the, the box art is... It's it's fine. It's it just... it's I get, like, Underworld vibes almost more yeah. than uh, 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 Tomb Raider. Like, I don't know why they're zoomed in so far on her face, but whatever. Yeah, I know. That's the front of the case there. It's a little bit of a... It's a bad front of the case. The back of the box, though, looks really nice. I appreciate that sure. one. Yeah, they turned it around in the new series. Let's talk about the GameCube version of Tomb Raider here. Tomb Raider Legend is the seventh entry in the Tomb Raider series. Like we talked about earlier, we had a couple of games on PS1, on PS2. The franchise went away for a little bit due to the poor reception of the sixth game in the series, but we finally got this game to come out on GameCube. Now, what do you think about Tomb Raider Legend? You know what, Neil? I I actually really like Tomb Raider Legend. I've played this game. I like the Tomb Raider series, like we said already, uh, and... Um, I think it's it's a different take on the series. Uh, I think the graphics also, for the time, you know, I was playing again this week and I was like, uh, the graphics aren't amazing. But for the time, they would have been really good, especially the character models. Mm-hmm. Like you could tell they put a lot of effort into the character models. Uh, just the, the the story is is a little more encapsulating than others. Actually, the control schemes too uh, is the control scheme just in general is really well done. And specifically, I'm talking about the grappling hook. Mm. Uh, having a grappling hook feels like something that she should have had like day one in every action adventure game, dude. Like anytime you have a jungle Honestly. a jungle exploration game, like we've talked about with Uncharted and Pitfall and any of these games, Tomb Raider is no exception. You need to have a grapple hook. It just makes exploration of mountains and hills and rock walls so much more exciting oh definitely for sure yeah and it's it, it just it makes things a little more agile yeah almost you know it, it feels like because a lot of early games you feel like you're dragging her mm-hmm. in a lot of places i even get that a little bit with some of the early uncharted games yeah where uncharted 3 well, and 2 as well did a good job of kind of you know almost launching nathan drake into <laughs> into stuff rather than kind of trying to slowly go around places right uh, i just wanted to talk a little bit about too is like so the 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 movie or the the game starts with kind of like an opening cinematic of uh, of them going down in a plane crash, mm-hmm. and uh, I always was like weird. She's kind of sitting on her mom's lap because this is like Laura Croft is like a ten year old. Right. She's showing her like these pictures that she drew, and then it's like, oh, we're going down, and <laughs> it's like you know her mom's like, hold on, I'll just put your seatbelt on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Everything will be all right. I'm like, oh, I don't think that's gonna help, dude. No. Yeah. Well, Laura was obviously fine. The rest of the crew on the plane we can assume, did not make it out. But that, that was kind of my issue with the Tomb Raider games up until the like the 2010 reboot again, is that the all the characters, including Laura, like it all just seems like they know that they're in no real danger or you know that she's going to be fine. Like even the bad guys kind of act like what 10-year-olds would assume bad guys are like. Like everyone's walking around with their gun out. They're all making jokes about, you know, just like bad jokes to each other. And the dialogue between characters also is not very real in these games no I, yeah i mean the these games were never good with that unfortunately and uh no. that's why i think the uncharted games were so well received because they actually felt like movies mm-hmm. in a lot of ways especially too i think more than anything yeah. like playing that i, I was really in, like encapsulated by the by the story by the dialogue clearly a lot of work and and care was put into making sure that they had really good voice actors with good scripts 
uh, funny that the games end up having better scripts than the the movie does yeah. but uh <laughs> <laughs> yeah the movies were interesting to say the least for sure but that's what's funny is that uncharted took so much influence from tomb raider and then tomb raider took so much influence from uncharted and i feel like tomb raider did a better job with what it took from uncharted because you feel like laura is in actual danger when she's scoping around these these bandit camps and she's hunting you know wolves and whatever else like i, I feel like she's actually in danger and she's actually hurt whereas in the uncharted games it's more of a popcorn indiana jones film i never feel like anybody yep in any sort of danger as Nathan Drake. So That's it kind of goes back to uh, to, to the, my issues with Tomb Raider. But I do have to give a huge shout out to Eidos Interactive for uh, moving the IP over to Crystal Dynamics after the longtime developer Core Designs, who we talked about earlier. Uh, after they made the game Tomb Raider Angel of Darkness, that game was just a colossal failure. They brought out Crystal Dynamics to to make a new Tomb Raider game. And this game came out and sold incredibly well, just over 4 million copies worldwide. That's difficult to do when a series is ha, has a bad game that, that comes out. Like, I have a hard time thinking that a game like if No Man's Sky 2 came out in 2025, like it would sell better than than any of its its predecessors. Oh, yeah. No. Uh, and 6.4 million, actually, Neil, on all consoles, wow. which is really impressive. Yeah, uh, that uh, number was honestly astonishing for a franchise that, as we said earlier, wasn't doing too well mm-hmm. in 2006. One thing I do want to talk about, though, real quick, is that how do you feel about having one game from a trilogy on a console and then the other games are not on that console? I was thinking about this, just putting myself in the lens of being in 2005, 2006. You know, you finally get a Tomb Raider game on on GameCube. It's good. It's a good game. And then the two games that come after that are not on GameCube. They're The games that came after Tomb Raider Legends are on Wii. Now, do you think that they should have made an effort to put those games on GameCube for the people that picked up the game on the console? Well, they couldn't have, right? Because yeah. it came out in 2006, Legend. And so the GameCube was, was. I mean, the fact, I think actually my issue is that this even came out on GameCube mm. at all. Yeah. Uh, it, it's weird that it, it wasn't just brought to uh, to the Wii immediately. Mm-hmm. Like on, like, it could have been a, easily a launch day uh, title for the Wii in 2006. Yeah. And then you have, uh, of course, yeah, again, said it earlier, Underworld. And then uh, the kind of remake that they had as well that they put on the Wii. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, it's too bad that um, the way they did it. But, you know, we got to have this on GameCube, which I'll take any day. Yeah. And I think the GameCube honestly probably runs it just as well, if not better than the Wii would. So yeah. <laughs> I'm totally fine with it. It totally does. And it's fun to watch uh, comparisons of the GameCube version compared to the PS2 and the Xbox. The GameCube version actually came out about six months after the PlayStation 2 and Xbox version. So you'd think it might look Mm. a little bit better. Unfortunately, they didn't make a ton of improvements, but in six months, I don't really know what else they could do. Uh, But I think it looks really good. It does, honestly. I think like the like I said, character models look great. Uh, I think the the environments look really good for the time. Mm. Uh, Like they they did they did definitely the best they could have done with this, especially with a new ip for this uh this dev to yeah. to really kind of try and create like that's it's a hard job it is like the the environments the the jungle and everything it looks really good and it looks even better on the 360 sure but for a gamecube game like they don't do open environments really well a game like king kong looks really nice like like some of the james bond games look really good but a lot of the open environments like we talked about earlier with pitfall uh like that game looks like trash like and it's trying to do a jungle i get that it's trying to be a little bit more cartoony but to make a realistic jungle on the hardware, the GameCube hardware, it was a really, it was really well done. Like I, I definitely give, t- yep. take my hat off for the developers. 
And uh, Mike, when this game came out in the UK, it uh, it knocked the previous highest highest selling game, which was at, at the time The Godfather, uh, off of off of the top selling charts that week. And I, I'm really excited. We're going to be talking about The Godfather next week to celebrate its 50th anniversary of the film. That's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know. I saw. I I also saw that little fact there. It's like, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Another like kind of interesting fact to think about too is that Core, who was the developer for the old games for uh, Tomb Raider, you know, they're a British company. And uh, Laura Croft was always kind of like a British entity in a lot of ways. And you kind of forget about that with the uh, with the movies. You know, it's Angelina Jolie, of course, playing uh, Laura Croft. And then with this, this kind of felt like the the move to the more Americanized almost mm. uh, style of gameplay where it's like this, yeah, national treasure style, right. you know, almost like very much uh, kind of shooting everyone cops and robbers style like that. I, I got that a lot from this and it works for a video game. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that was the way to do it. And you can swim in it, Neil. You can swim. You can swim. <laughs> this is a game you can actually swim in. That's true. They did a really good job in the Tomb Raider, uh, the, the latest one, Shadow of the Tomb Raider. The swimming mechanics in that game, some of the best swim mechanics I've ever played in a video game before. Really? Yeah. I highly, huh. I highly, highly, highly recommend that trilogy for so many people. It's It got overlooked. The third game was, I don't know what happened with that game. I don't think it came out towards the beginning of the pandemic, but... It was not as well reviewed as Tomb Raider and Rise of the Tomb Raider. I don't know what happened. Like I think all three of those games are terrific, but that's just one man's opinion. Yeah, yeah. I, I've I've never played all. I've only played the first one, mm-hmm. uh, like we said, the 2013 one. But um, I'd like to really get into Rise of the Tomb Raider and Shadow because I love items. Yeah, I, I do too. They they do good stuff. I hope that they can return to Tomb Raider one day in the future. So Tomb Raider Legend was released on November 14, 2006. It's developed by Crystal Dynamics, who also make Gex the Gecko and of course, Tomb Raider, published by Eidos. This game is also on Game Boy Advance, Windows, DS, Xbox, Xbox 360, PS2, PS3, and PSP. Rates an 8 out of 10, priced today at around $30. And this is, of course, an action adventure, just like the previous Tomb Raider games before it. But Mike, before we talk about Tomb Raider on the GameCube, let's talk about our memories of the franchise. Did you play any of the Tomb Raider games back in the day? No, I uh, I did. Pl- I didn't play the early Tomb Raiders. I never played the PlayStation ones. Uh, Legend is actually... Uh, that and the 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 remake uh, Tomb Raiders, so I think just Tomb Raider in 2013. Right. Uh, those are the only two I've ever played in my life, Neil. Actually, mm-hmm. uh, I, but I've always had an, an affinity for the franchise. I saw the movies back in the early 2000s, of course, mm-hmm. and you know Lara Croft with her triangle boobs <laughs> and uh, her famous oversexualization for sure. And yeah. I'll take this time to say the series and kind of go through the games here, Neil. Sure. Um, we got Tomb Raider 1 coming out in 96, got remade in 2007, uh, Tomb Raider 2 in 97, Tomb Raider 3 in 98, uh, and then Tomb Raider The Last Revelation in 99, Tomb Raider Chronicles in 2000, and kind of at this point, each game is getting worse and worse, yeah. <laughs> review-wise, yeah. uh, as you can see when you put out five games in five years, mm. and then Tomb Raider The Angel of Darkness, which is uh, considered one of the worst games uh, on the systems at that point in 2003. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, there was a reboot. Core uh, design got switched out with Crystal Dynamics, uh, the American developer, and they ended up doing Legend, like we're talking to talk about very soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, Underworld uh, in 2008, Tomb Raider in 2013, uh, Rise of the Tomb Raider in 2015, and of course, Shadow of the Tomb Raider in 2018. It's a lot. It's a lot. In total, we have 19 games in the series, plus there's even an arcade game, which is going to be released in 2022, which I always find interesting in this podcast when we find arcade games in in development. Mm -hmm. I always forget that that's just another platform that some people do still play video games on, and there actually is, like, 
I guess the last time I went to a Dave & Buster's was like three years ago, which for those of you that don't know, Dave & Buster's is like an adult arcade place for, for adults. They serve alcohol. You can play you can play pinball, air hockey, and arcade games. Most of them are like just iPhone games, basically. They're all app games. But yeah. occasionally you see a video game based on an actual license. Like you'll see a Halo cabinet or you'll see a Tomb Raider cabinet in this case. And I remember seeing, a, I think it was a Shadow of the Tomb Raider cabinet when I was last there three years ago now. So I guess that they're going to be coming That's out cool. with another one. It is cool. I never played them, but I do love I do love the Eidos uh, remake of the Tomb Raider. The trilogy that they have done in the last couple of years are terrific games. Three of my favorite games on the PlayStation 4, honestly. Great trilogy. Are those the only, are those the only Tomb Raider games that you've played yes. in your life? Yeah, they are. Because I didn't have a PlayStation okay. 1 back in the day. I was an N64 mm-hmm. fan, and I didn't play Tomb Raider Legend on the GameCube. I don't know what it was that brought me into the series. I, I guess it was, actually, I can tell you a story on what brought me into the series, Mike. Oh, I, don't, I don't know if I've told, told you this on the podcast. You love this story, of course. But uh, <laughs> I, I worked at an EB Games or GameStop in Canada here uh, back in 2016, which a lot of critics really loved it. It was like the big action-adventure game of the year. And me and the staff, we were working behind the counter, and some guy comes to the, comes to the front of the counter and, and just tells us, like, hey, I'm looking for, uh, I'm looking for the Tom Brady game. And we like all look at each other. We were like, uh, Madden, like Madden 17. And he was yeah. like, no, 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 it's, it's not, it's not that it's, it's the Tom Brady game. And we were like, Tom Brady's like, Tom Brady's a football player. Like it must, you must be talking about Madden. No. Yeah. And he's like, no, 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 it's not the Madden game. I know this. It, it's Tom Brady. It's the game about the girl on a mountain. And we were like, Tomb Raider. <laughs> it was such a weird moment. He's like, yeah, oh someone ra- like, and we we're like, yeah, okay. Rise of Tomb Raider. Got it, buddy. He's like, he oh. didn't, but we were like, dude, we've been playing video games for like 20 years. There's no Tom Brady game other than Madden. Uh, so that was a really funny story. To be story. fair, the first five letters or first yeah. six letters of Tom Brady and Tomb Raider are the same. So in his defense, yes, you are correct. But after that, I was like, man, I got to play this game. So I got to play this game. So I think I had the Xbox one at the time. I hadn't traded in for my PS4 yet. So I picked up Rise of the Tomb Raider on Xbox one and instantly was blown away by the graphics, the acting, the the, the level design, the the action, like the the suspense of everything. I was just taken into the series right then and there, and this is the second game in the trilogy. So after I beat Rise of Tomb Raider, went back and played Tomb Raider, the original, Mm -hmm. and loved that one. It's a great origin story for Laura. I think way better than anything told in the earlier games. I don't really care for the acting in any of the earlier games. This one feels a bit more real. She's a little bit less, not ditzy, but just less like a what you'd expect like a a girl to be like in the jungle. You can tell she has like a history of studying uh, history. She has a history of studying history, literally. And she's (laughs) done traveling. Like you can really tell she's an experienced mountain climber and a hiker and everything. And then Shadow of the Tomb Raider, the last game that came out, I adored that one too. I think I played that one during the pandemic and absolutely adored it. So all three of those games are really good. I haven't gone back and played any of the originals. I really have no desire to. Um, sure. But yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I always recommend people who like Uncharted to play the Tomb Raider games because they might be like me and and they'll enjoy it more. The Tomb Raider franchise, Neil, is really interesting because I like to think of it as a comparison between uh, this and Crash and Spyro. Mm. You know, they all come out around the same time, like the 96 to 99 kind of style. And, you know, Crash and Spyro, both trilogies, both made by these successful developers mm-hmm. who then left the franchises uh, to the publishers and they went on to do their own thing. Uh, and 
I thought that was really cool with those parallels. And then we have Tomb Raider 1, 2, and 3 come out to great critical uh, reviews for the most part. Mm -hmm. And you would think that Core Design would do what Naughty Dog and Insomniac do uh, with Spyro and Crash and leave the franchise on a high note with the trilogy. Mm -hmm. But... Uh, and that's what they wanted to do. That was the that was the plan. But Eidos was really pressuring them to come back and keep making these games, uh, keep keeping up the annualized franchise. They knew they had a movie deal in the works as well. So this was a pretty big thing. And uh, Core Design thought, okay, you know, we'll come back. And they do the last revelation in '99, which is the fourth game. Doesn't get great reviews. They do the Chronicles in 2000. Uh, even worse reviews. Yeah. And just the 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 chaos that uh, was that there was creating these games as well, and of course, Angel of Darkness in '03. Uh, there's crazy stories about the production of that, where just things were delayed constantly. Everyone hated their jobs. Uh, there was a lot of fighting between Core and Idos. And it's some crazy stories. Can't say them all here. Just please, honestly, just like look up Angel of Darkness. You'll find them all. Mm -hmm. uh, this Eidos also said that because Angel of Darkness tanked, but with the critics and commercially, that ended up tanking the film too. The right. the the sequel to uh, to Tomb Raider that Angelina Jolie uh, starred in. So yeah, crazy stuff. Crazy stuff. It's such a shame to hear about. But like, really, I don't know if if story heavy games are a good candidate for being annualized. If that makes any <laughs> no, sense. Not. Like like shooters, like <laughs> bro shooters like Call of Duty are fine. Like somehow Activision are able to make a campaign every year, which is really unbelievable. As even though I don't play Call of Duty, I am always in awe that they can come out with these games that sell millions of units every year, mainly for the online. But there is a campaign that works in those games too, yeah. which is amazing. Yeah. But annualized games, like we think about sports games, maybe racing games, those make sense because you don't need to come up with characters and story arcs and climaxes and everything. You don't need to make a 12 to 20 hour story. I think those are great for every three to five years. Like a Tomb Raider game every year, it's like that. that's just too much. I would I would feel burned out of it as a gamer. I can't imagine <laughs> working on it. Like your day in and your day is just maybe coming up with death animations for Laura, which we haven't even talked about yet, is one of the standouts of the <laughs> franchise. Or like when Laura does die, it's usually brutal. And imagine that being yeah. your day job. Like you would be so depressed by the end of the day, basically having PTSD. <laughs> Honestly, I, I and just like, yeah, it just, it's horrible doing the same thing over and over again and knowing that you're kind of boxed in. And again, that's why Naughty Dog and mm. Insomniac left those franchises because they wanted to do different things. And that's really the only way to, to do it, unfortunately. But yeah, yeah that's, uh, but we'll talk about uh, Tomb Raider Legend, Daniel. Let's move on to our last game of the day. But before we do, let's read the back of the case for Pitfall, The Lost Expedition. I just got an email, by the way, from our building manager. We have about 20 minutes before the alarm goes off, so we should probably speed this episode up. I don't think it's going to go off now. I think we'll be okay, too. But let's uh, I think we'll be let's good. see what we can do here. Back of the case yeah. for Pitfall, the Lost Expedition. As the risk-taking explorer, Pitfall Harry, you've got to rescue the members of a lost expedition. Stop an evil high priest from unleashing revenge. Prevent your arch-rival from stealing the treasures of El Dorado. And help a princess fulfill her destiny. Good thing that's all in a day's work for you. For you. For you. A little bit of Bane there. A little Bane <laughs> reference. <laughs> I love that movie. So, Mike, this game starts off with you fighting a tiger slash lion thing in a temple. Everything's on fire. I feel like right when this game kicks off, I have missed a ton of lore in the Pitfall series. Yeah. Like, what is... I mean, there's a lot to unpack here. Like, what is going on in this game? It's, you know, it's it's cool in some ways. Like, I get it. Mm -hmm. I understand some of the, like 
why someone would want to play Pitfall because it's it's just kind of a generic um, 3D platformer in a lot of ways, but mixed uh, clearly with Tomb Raider and Prince of Persia style elements and just just that you know Uncharted style adventure games. Mm-hmm. But it's like the poor man's version of that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, exactly. Hundred percent. Like watching it, it's like okay, this is basically what Uncharted became. Uncharted is much more gritty compared to this, which is saying a lot because Uncharted, I don't consider a very gritty game, but you're playing as Pitfall Harry and I didn't play Pitfall as a kid or anything, obviously, but uh, he's just like a really wacky character, big eyes, almost like a, he looks like the human version of Ratchet from Ratchet and Clank. That's kind of what I thought just looking at him. He looks like Ratchet from Ratchet and Clank. He's just not a wombat. And then the animals start talking to you as well. And I'm like, okay, what are like the, what, what is this world here? Are we not on planet earth? Like, I feel like I missed so much by not playing <laughs> the 1979 game. <laughs> yeah. There's a, uh, again, lots to unpack and it's, you know, this is an Activision game. Uh, like we said, right. it's, uh, you know, it, and done by edge of reality. Like these are real developers, real publishers. And of course, you know, it's pitfall. It's an old game and it has a lot of history. So I would have thought this they would have put a bit more love into creating this, but also at the same time, don't want to knock Pitfall too hard mm. because I can see, you know, if if I was a kid and got this game uh, for my GameCube, someone gave it to me, I would have loved this game, yeah. honestly, because uh, I wouldn't have had experience with Tomb Raider or Prince of Persia or Uncharted at this point. So I really wouldn't have known that there were better games out there. Right. And the, this game is charming in a lot of ways. Like, the, the graphics work for it. It actually reminds me a lot of Tack mm-hmm. and The Power of Juju. Like, that kind of style. Yeah. Like a cartoon 3D platformer, really. That's what it is. Yeah. Just, this is a bit more action-adventure. There's not as... There's there's really none of the, like, collect-a-thon in these levels. It's just yeah. jumping from platform to platform and fighting uh, animal enemies. And you don't really ever don any weapons. I think you're mainly just using your hands as combat, which kind of is a little bit boring. Like it would have been nice if you gave him like a whip or something a bit more Indiana Jones style, but it's crazy. Like the game starts off and you're, you're a white guy exploring a jungle and then a blonde woman who's obviously way smarter than you joins your, joins your exploration. (laughs) It's like, this is literally uncharted. Like it's, it's crazy how much (laughs) it reminds me of uncharted. The only difference here is that there are talking animals and the animals are actually pretty entertaining. This one, like you can kind of feel that some of the voice voice actors as maybe inexperienced as they were were having fun with it i I feel like that the voice actors were having fun with their with the role that they had in this game like a talking cheetah or you know playing with a dead snake that you where you meet him and it's it's just kind of it's kind of cute oh yeah there's a lot of fun taken in this uh in this game i think that just the biggest issue of it is the whole idea of pitfall the entire mechanics of pitfall all you know kind of go back to this the swinging Mm -hmm. like uh you know swinging across chasms right and and using this rope and using like the, the jungle area to to swing and that's it like that's what the core original game was right. right and so it's really hard you know what do you do as a developer in this generation of consoles you know you're in 2004 like what do you how do you really uh evolve this game because uh, it's it's definitely going for that kid friendly style mm-hmm. almost as well so you're a bit handcuffed there and there's just so many other games like this out there that it would have been a, an almost impossible task for Edge of Reality to create something completely unique with this. Yeah, I don't think that there really is anything you can or should do with Pitfall because it is coming from such a basic level of game design on the Atari 2600 that making it go from that to like 
I thought of like Gears of War or something like just something completely yeah. out there, like a shooter or or Uncharted. Like I think if they had gone too serious, like exploring a jungle and your your best friend could be dead, you don't know. I think that that's too much. I think that they had to keep this a, an E rated game and make it just quirky and and fun because we did we mm. have seen what other games can be like, like with Space Invaders or or Pac Man. Like some of these games, they they are converted from the arcades to home consoles, and it just doesn't work super well. Where I, I think that the Activision knew that like this was not going to become a franchise. Like this is going to be a one-off. We're never going to do this again. Let's just have some fun with it. And yeah. and and they did. And they did. And the main actor, the main voice actor for Pitfall Harry is Steve Blum. I'm not. Oh yeah. I'm not sure if we've talked about him yet in this show or just Mike, you and I offline talking about him. But he's a very well-renowned voice actor. He yeah. he has a lot of side characters that he does in a lot of anime and cartoons and video games. Uh, he's most well known for his voice work uh, as Wolverine in the 2011 X Men series. He was also in Digimon. Uh, he's in an episode of SpongeBob, What's New Scooby Doo, Totally Spies, Grim Adventures of Billy and Mandy, loads of cartoons from the 2000s that you and I both loved. He, he was never really the main character other than Wolverine. He was always like a side character. But still, okay. like if you go and check out his IMDb, hundreds of of voice credits there. So they got a really cool voice actor to uh, to join this game. Oh, that's great! Like, like honestly, again, like they they did try in this. Mm-hmm. Like, they they put effort into this game, and that that was that's really good to hear too. Because yeah, he he lends his voice everywhere. He's like the male Tara Strong in a lot of ways uh, as well. Uh, I did want to want to say I loved how he opens up the menu every time, and it's actually just like his I guess journal. Yeah, I think that was really cool. Like, that's a good little uh, way to to show kind of the uh, the controls and to show. Uh, the objectives, missions, everything like that that you have in there. Uh, and there's a bunch of little Easter eggs that I picked up. We talked in the Easter egg episode a couple weeks ago. Uh, and I wanted to point some of them out for you, Neil. Some of them are references as well. So, yeah. yeah. But uh, uh, Nicole McAllister, who is his blonde female companion, as you, you said, uh, her tank top and shorts are nearly identical to Laura Croft's oh, wow. in Tomb Raider. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, you can see that. There's definitely similarities there. Definitely. Oh, yeah. 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 And uh, the 2600, the original game, is playable in this game, mm. uh, which is, I, again, we love when you're able to do that. Mm. That's just, I think, every game that is a, a new, ga- new game based on a very old arcade game should have that for sure. Right. Uh, Harry, uh, his father, is uh, Dr. David Crane. Uh, which is an unseen character, hmm. uh, which is named after, of course, the creator of the Pitfall series, like we said. Earlier. That's really cool. It, it harkens back to the Atari days of hiding Easter eggs in games, that they kept yeah. that going here. That That's terrific. I'm glad that they could sneak that in. He also says uh, a couple times, he's like, oh, I, I bet Mr. Jones didn't have to ever deal with this, you know, referencing Indiana Jones. <laughs> that's good. Yeah, <laughs> see, all of these action-adventure games and jungles, they all are so, like, intertwined. Like, it's hard to make yes. any of them stand out from each other. Like, Tomb Raider takes influence from Uncharted, takes influence from Indiana Jones, takes influence from Pitfall, and they all copy and borrow from each other. I love that. Yep. I think it's really neat. I think so too. Yeah. But Mike, before we talk about the the sixth and final installment of the Pitfall series uh, on GameCube, let's talk about Pitfall in general. Uh, so the plot of Pitfall, yeah. for those of those of you that don't know, I'm sure many of our listeners have never played this Atari 2600 classic before. The series is set in 1935. You play as a character known as Pitfall Harry. He's like a fearless, rough-and-ready treasure hunter. Um, 
he he's uh, joined by the beautiful archaeologist Nicole McAllister, and they they're always just exploring jungles and they're you know fighting bad guys, um, much like uh, much like from the game Uncharted that we're going to talk a ton about today. Obviously, uh, what's your memory of this series? Did you ever play this game like as a port? Because this is one of the most ported games of all time. Yeah, I have never played this game. I know it. I've seen Pitfall and I've seen the artwork for sure, uh, like everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, Atari Twenty Six Hundred. When it first came out, and uh, technically in '82, but yeah, it was created by David Crane in '79. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's a side-scrolling platform game, honestly. That it's a genre that ended up dominating mm-hmm. uh, the systems that came after it. Uh, and uh, like, I, I again, I've seen it, but I've never, I've never actually played it. Uh, definitely before our time, in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And uh, I have a little quote from David Crane. In 1979, when he says uh, that he sat down and with a blank sheet of paper and drew a stick figure in the center. And I said, okay, I have a little running man. Let's put him on the path. I'll put two more lines on the paper. Where is this path? Let's put it in a jungle. I drew some trees. Why is he running? Uh, I'll draw some treasures. And boom, Pitfall was born. And the entire process took me about 10 minutes. And then about 10,000 hours of programming later, the game was complete. 10,000 hours <laughs> later, they came up with a game that takes 20 minutes to beat. That's basically the time limit of the game. You run through 255 yeah. screens. But there's so much replayability to this game because you are going for the perfect score. Perfect score in Pitfall is 114,000. Uh, you can accomplish that by collecting all 32 treasures without losing any points by falling into holes or touching logs. So lots of replayability for a classic arcade game. Obviously, that's what they usually went for back in the 80s. And all in all, uh, Pitfall is the fourth best-selling game for the Atari 2600, selling 4 million units for the console, which was good timing on David Crane because that is just one or two years before uh, before Atari <laughs> crashed the video game market with their E.T. and Pac-Man port and whatnot. Um, so very well done. It even spawned a sequel uh, after several sequels after that, uh, mo- more notably Pitfall 2 uh, for the Atari 2600 in 1984. Yeah, the Pitfall series continues with that one, of course, Neil, and it continues with Super Pitfall in 1987, Pitfall the Mayan Adventure in 1994, uh, Pitfall 3D Beyond the Jungle in 1998. That's kind of our first 3D version of Pitfall. And then the final edition that we're going to be talking about today, Pitfall The Lost Expedition, came out in 2004. And that um, was the last one. And it's interesting to think, Neil, because... So we're going to be talking about Tomb Raider soon, and this is almost like an alternate reality for Tomb Raider. Because Tomb Raider was saved by Tomb Raider Legend uh, in 2003, and Pitfall was not saved by the Lost Expedition, uh, unfortunately. <laughs> and, you know, it's it's kind of funny to see something like this when you... When you take a classic old franchise and it ends up just dying, which is really sad because mm-hmm. that totally could have happened with Tomb Raider. That definitely could have happened with Prince of Persia as well. That's another time where we see a game saving a franchise. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, yeah, uh, I, I see Pitfall as almost, you know, the the alternate reality for these games of like what could have happened if the game came out to not a lot of fanfare. I don't mind some video game franchises, unfortunately, being left to history. Like I know that we talk a lot about in this podcast wanting certain games to come back like F-Zero mm-hmm. and Wave Race and 1080 Avalanche. Nintendo fans have a laundry list of games that they would like to see come back uh, or, or done better. But it, for me, it would be just really weird if kids today were still playing Pong 96 or whatever, like the whatever sure. iteration we'd be on by now. So it's okay for some of these games to just be left to history. And it's not without lack of trying, actually. Back in 2012, Activision did release a Pitfall game for the iOS 
uh, and a version for Android as well. And the game is basically a 3D endless runner in the style of Temple Run, which yeah, I don't know if you remember that, that game, Mike, back in like high, we were just finishing up high school. I think that game was huge on people were playing that on their iPod touches or their iPads, or if you're lucky enough to have an iPhone, the endless runner Temple Run was really, really popular. And I can definitely see how Pitfall would be an easy uh candidate to be ported into that game style and the same year david crane announced a kickstarter for uh, a game called jungle venture which was going to be like a spiritual successor to pitfall mm. and the market spoke like the the goal the uh, the kickstarter goal for the game was nine hundred thousand dollars us they raised thirty one thousand dollars so there's no Ooh, desire <laughs> no there's no desire for a pitfall game to come back in today's in today's uh market yeah, that's that's tough, Neil. That's tough. Very tough. But Pitfall, The Lost Expedition, was released on February 18th, 2004, developed by Edge of Reality. They also made Shark Tale, Over the Hedge, and Tony Hawk on the N64, published by Activision. This game is also on PlayStation 2, Xbox, Game Boy Advance, Windows, Wii, and Digiblast. It rates a 7 out of 10, priced today at around $30. This game is an action-adventure platformer. Mike, what the heck is a Digiblast? Yeah, that's a great question, Neil. We 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 get a new console here. We get the Digiblast Ooh. by Nico Nico, mm. not not Nokia, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> released in November two thousand five. Its original price was eighty euros, which um, is probably about uh, one hundred and twenty US dollars at the time, mm-hmm. maybe one hundred and thirty. Okay. And uh, it was yeah very short lived, uh, and they it was you know a European release. It was mostly in. Netherlands, France, Italy, uh, Spain, UK as well, and it was just in time for the holiday, and they were planning to sell 200,000 units during the Christmas season. Oh, no. And, uh, well, yes, of course, that didn't uh, that didn't pan out, but uh, it was trying to, it was just kind of a really, really small little handheld device that was aimed at young children. Uh, I, I see it as, like, one one part of the DS screen. Okay. That's kind of the best way to describe this thing. Mm. And it kind of almost looks like a engage in some some points uh, as well. But uh, there were quite a few games on it. Uh, interesting lineup, uh, launch lineup, with Rayman 3, Spider-Man, Mysterio's Menace, wow. Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 4, X2, Wolverine's Revenge, uh, Sonic X, uh, SpongeBob, SquarePants, the movie, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and, of course, Pitfall. Hmm. And and the console also was a portable media player, Neil. Oh, okay. Uh, where you could watch uh, shows like SpongeBob and TMNT uh, on there, and uh, each cartridge cost ten euros and contained three episodes of each show for a total playtime of seventy-five minutes. I'm so nostalgic for stuff like that, but I do not want anything <laughs> to do with that to come back again. I remember when they used to do stuff like this on the Game Boy Advance and the DS yeah. and the PSP. Of course, was probably the peak. To that that form of media, watching a couple episodes on your little device while you're driving to to hockey practice, but that's such a cute little console. I'm I'm sorry to hear that it didn't work out. No surprise there. I'm very interested in the licenses though that they got for video games, SpongeBob yeah. and Spider-Man yeah. and Tony Hawk. That's really neat. But another console to join the uh, the bargain bin with the the Engage and the Gizmondo, like we've talked about. Yeah, only sold a hundred thousand units over its lifespan. Unfortunately, that is rough. All right, Mike, let's move on to our next game. But before we do, let's read the back of the case for Prince of Persia, The Two Thrones. Sounds good. All right. One warrior, two souls. I returned home expecting peace. Instead, I found my kingdom ravaged by war and my people enslaved. Now I am a fugitive, hunted by hostile armies and plagued by a curse that is gradually possessing my soul. A darker prince resides in me now, and I must embrace his power and skill if I want to resolve peace to my land, my people, and my soul. 
that's a pretty good back of the case there. I, I kind of like that it's written in, in first person, although it doesn't exactly explain super well what the game is. It's more, it reads more like a journal entry. It, yeah, I mean, <laughs> kind of, this this game is kind of like a journal entry, Neil. But it did sell very well, Mike. The Prince of Persia, The Two Thrones, sold 1.5 million units in its first month, which is less than A Warrior Within, which we talked about a few minutes ago. Uh, but... So, so as you could tell, the the franchise, the Prince of Persia franchise, was on the decline at this point. But do you have any memories of the Two Thrones when it first came out? Uh, no, honestly, uh, the, like like I said earlier, the only Prince of Persia game that I really remembered well was uh, with Sands of Time when that came out. And of course, played Warrior Within, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, uh, t- uh, Two Thrones. Don't remember it, but honestly, uh, playing it and like watching gameplay, it, it looks like a good game still. And I think this is a game. You know, honestly, it's very satisfying. And it's a great game if you like the first two games in the Prince of Persia franchise. And it's not exactly a game that, like, could you play this game without playing the other two? Because this is the final, no. this is the final chapter in the Sands of Time trilogy, not counting two of the spinoff titles that came out. Uh, Battle of Prince of Persia released uh, in 2005 on the DS and Prince of Persia The Forgotten Sands released in 2010, sort of to just mm-hmm. pad out the series. Uh, it feels like that if like if you didn't play the first two games, especially the Sands of Time, you'd be pretty lost with the Two Thrones. Well, Neil, you'd be lost even <laughs> even playing these games because I don't know if you know how this game starts, but you're on a ship back to Babylon mm. and you're coming back there with your new gal, uh, Kalina or Kylina, uh, and she's of course the Empress of Time, right? Uh, in Warrior Within. And if you're really confused if you didn't get the secret ending yes. in the second game, uh, because because uh, that kind of just screws everything. That's up. very true. Like the the two endings in Warrior Within, they were explained quite a bit better. Like we've talked about before on this podcast with alternate endings. Uh, mm-hmm. Key to game design is to make it obvious that there is more than one ending in the game, which I think that Warrior Within did a pretty good job of doing. Uh, and if you had played that game, luckily the campaign is not super long. If you want to go back and get both endings, you'll probably be okay. And Prince of Persia fans were pretty hardcore at the time. Like I didn't, I never played these games back in the day, uh, but I knew that people that did were really invested in the story. Um, oh, especially yeah. like when these games came back out again on PlayStation 3. Uh, I remember people that I worked with were playing them again and, and absolutely adored them because they were a part of that hack and slash, I guess, boom of the mid 2000s, like with Devil May Cry and God of War. Uh, Prince of Persia was just right in there with them, and the lore in these games was was pretty easy to to understand. Like it wasn't like you had to go deep into the game looking for Easter eggs or anything. You just kind of the, the story yeah. was given to you in cutscenes and everything. So yeah, it was relatively easy to follow for sure. But yeah, I just thought the 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 opening is is really funny in that in that sense. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you don't have to. Luckily, you don't have to do some crazy stuff to find the uh, actual ending. Like we'll talk about probably in a few weeks for. Uh, Batman Dark Tomorrow, Neil, yeah. when the, the new Batman movie comes out. <laughs> That's right. I can't wait for that new Batman movie to come out. That's going to be really good. But Two Thrones does do a pretty good job of making improvements on uh, mm-hmm. on the series after Sands of Time and Warrior Within, uh, one of which is the uh, interaction with the environment seems to be the main improvement of the game. Uh, for example, you can launch off walls at 45-degree angles. Uh, you can uh, climb parkour. parkour. More and more parkour <laughs> was just added to this game, to this franchise. Uh, you can slide down chutes. You can balance on swimming, swinging poles, among other things, which, Mike, we're talking about Ubisoft. We're talking about environmental interaction and parkour. It sounds an awful lot like that they were starting to transition towards Assassin's Creed. 
Yeah, like well, like we said at the the beginning of our Prince of Persia part of this episode, mm. like that's that's why Prince of Persia kind of died was Assassin's Creed. Yeah. Now, would you like to have seen the, this series to continue after Two Thrones, or do you think that Assassin's the move to Assassin's Creed was a good choice? Uh, I, I it's hard to say, right? Yeah. Because I do I think they were actually getting better with the GameCube uh, releases, but I don't not I'm not really sure where they could have gone with it. Yeah. Because it is definitely, you know, you're, you're kind of constraining yourself. You're, it's Prince of Persia. It's always going to be taking place in ancient Persia. Right. That's the, that's the name of the game. <laughs> uh, and and it's, you know, even with, like, Two Thrones, I think, probably pushed it as far as they could go in terms of gameplay and story. Because, you know, gameplay, we have, you, you mentioned the environmental attacks and everything. But the biggest thing, I think, actually was the ability to stealth kill mm. people. You know, that was a huge change from, like, the hack-and-slash style of the, the previous two games. Sure. Uh, and that's what I like about this game a lot, is the fact that I don't have to sit here and fight people forever. I can just go up and kill everybody yeah. <laughs> as long as I'm doing the stealth properly. But the stealth as well is kind of tricky because you have to time it perfectly when the dagger is shining. Mm, okay. Uh, which is always hard for me to do. I think it's a cool mechanic. Again, you always talk about how... You like it when, you know, things in the game are showing you what to do rather than like a control scheme. Right, like an arrow and a pop-up up. box with a with dialogue telling <laughs> yeah. you what to do. I much prefer when you have environmental clues telling you what to do. Yeah. Definitely. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, environmental clues. But yeah, and so I like I think, you know, they probably took it as far as they really could go with this uh, because even with the story, it's they push it to be like you're two different people. You're the, the dark prince and the light prince almost. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like that was cool, and I think that was a really good, innovative way to create new gameplay. Uh, you know, the the Dark Prince, of course, uh, is constantly taking damage, right? Uh, but can do so much more damage to people. I think uh, almost like Spider Man and Venom in Ultimate Spider Man. That's what I was thinking too when I when I was doing research for this game. Your your prince develops the split personality in in Two Thrones, mm-hmm. which is kind of a neat alter ego. Uh, game design that they included, which is really neat. Like like you said, that they can't go to different parts of the world or different parts in history. It is Prince of Persia, of course. But to have this alter ego, I did get vibes of like Spider-Man and Venom. Yeah, and the ability yeah, to, for sure. to control or to wield different weapons depending on who you're playing as. I would now. Could you you could you automatically switch between the characters in this game, or was it only during certain times? I was kind of confused. Only during certain times, just like Venom and Spider-Man. Yeah, I, I do like the idea of that. I, I I like it more though, like when you can change whenever you want. Like I think that the game that I I think about is Spider-Man: Web of Shadows. Uh, yeah. which is a really good Spider-Man game from the 360 generation. I'm pretty sure for the majority of that game, you can swap in and out of uh, black suit and red suit, depending on what you want to do. Um, yeah, like you take damage if you're a certain suit and you're more stronger with that suit, so there is the trade-off. But I like the ability of changing your skin, basically, in a video game. It's really neat. I'm glad that they found a way to kind of shoehorn that into the series. Yeah, no, me too, for sure. I And I think... Uh, I, like honestly, I think this game is is probably the best you're gonna get at this point, and you know, being the the, the third game of the, in the series or in the uh, in the reboot, I guess. Mm-hmm. And they're probably correct to go the Assassin's Creed way. Yeah. Uh, and unfortunately, because I'm not honestly a big fan of Assassin's Creed at all, no. and I honestly prefer Prince of Persia to them because I think the problem is is that if they did go and keep making Prince of Persia, then you would have a very formulaic. Mm. Uh, style games like a lot of the Assassin's Creed, Assassin's Creed games. Sorry if I'm <laughs> offending any Assassin's Creed fans out there, but uh... it really could have gone either way. Like we could have an alternate reality right now where we're where we are playing Prince of Persia Odyssey or Prince of Persia Brotherhood. Like all of these games, yeah. all of these Assassin's Creed games could easily have been Prince of Persia games. But 
nonetheless, we uh, Ubisoft did go and make their own IP, and uh, I'm sure that they're doing way better for it since they did not need to share the license with the creator of Prince of Persia. I also want to say uh, th- there's, of course, you know, it's mid-2000s. What do we need in a game, Neil? What's the, what's the greatest innovation we can get? The only thing I can think of is making an adventure <laughs> mode, but this is Prince of Persia. So the next best choice, of course, would be kart racing. That's right, Neil. <laughs> there is kart racing in this game, Prince of Persia Kart Racer. Oh, wow. Uh, it's like you're in chariots, kind of. <laughs> so the idea is cool, and it, actually the environment looks like Star Wars pod racing. Okay. Uh, which so immediately I was like, yes, let's go. This is cool. Mm-hmm. But uh, no, it's not at all. Uh, one mistake on uh, in the driving and you die. And it's really, really frustrating. Oh, man, that's too bad. I do love the idea of uh, adding kart racing to any game. Prince of Persia, not what I would expect, but uh, that's really good. I'm so glad that they did it nonetheless. I think every game should have a kart racing mode of some kind. <laughs> Dark Souls Dark, kart. Dark, Dark Souls kart would be a great choice. Nickelodeon kart racers maybe work on polishing that up a little bit. So Prince of Persia, The Two Thrones was released on December 1st, 2005. It's developed by Ubisoft Montreal, published by Ubisoft. It's also on Game Boy Advance, PS2, Xbox, Windows, Mobile, iOS, PSP, and Mac OS X. It's priced today at around $15, and this is of course an action-adventure hack-and-slash game. All right, Mike, let's move on to the next game in the Prince of Persia series, but before we do, let's read the back of the case for Prince of Persia Warrior Within. Warrior within. Warrior, uh, warriors within me and you. One fate, <laughs> one million ways to defy it. With the free form fighting system, that's hard to say, developed unique combat styles and combos utilizing over 60 melee weapons, projectiles, the environment, and enemies themselves. Years of strife have passed. The prince, now a battle-hardened outcast hunted by fate's demon forces, must embark on a fatal odyssey to defy his preordained death. Only by summoning the infinite powers of a devastating new combat art can he awaken the warrior within and emerge with his life and then it also says sequel to the game of the year of course talking about prince of persia sands of time which we already talked about so mike prince of persia warrior within is the sequel to the sands of time the acclaimed game of course that we just talked about it was a big hit on gamecube ps2 and xbox when warrior within came out it did pretty good within the first month being on the market sold almost two million units and uh like we said the publications were giving it eights and nines do you have, I remember when The Sands of Time came out, but I really don't remember any of these sequels coming out. Do you remember when Warrior Within came out? I kind of remember Warrior Within because I I remember it was like the edgy mm. Prince of Persia. You know, this was the uh, the emo style, kind of like Tobey Maguire Spider-Man 3 style <laughs> oh, no. uh, Prince of Persia. <laughs> <laughs> That's too bad. They, but they also gave the character the ability to wield two weapons, which of course is really cool. Love that in sword fighting games. But yeah, they did decide to go on a bit of a darker tone than The Sense of Time, which is a bit more of like a fairy tale. It's a bit dreamlike. This one completely took that out and made it more like a like a, like a shadow, like a, the Majora's Mask of the Prince of Persia series. Yeah, but not in a great way, honestly. So I, I've been playing it this week. And a uh, friend of the show, Jed, lent it to me. So thank you, Jed. In a DVD ca- uh, case, mm. uh, which uh, nice. uh, you always find some <laughs> some games in the DVD case instead of the game. Yeah, case, I know. But that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, just like uh, I want to, you know, talk about some good parts of the game. And I got to say the combat is very good. Very fluid, mm. for sure. Um, I, I had a lot of fun actually going around and fighting people. 
it felt like a, I mean, obviously it felt like a Prince of Persia game, but it felt more fluid than Sands of Time in that sense. Okay. And it's very mature for sure. And it's got the M rating mm. and you can tell like it's, uh, all the dialogue is like very, uh, it's almost like very aggressive. Well, don't they use some mild swear words in this game? Like I was, they, they, no, they, they use actual swear actual words in this ones. game. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So that, I was like, oh, okay. This, yeah, this is mature. This is how we got the M. <laughs> and, and of course, lots of gore, like lots of gore, mm. lots of, of, of just edginess. Uh, but I think one of the biggest things is that it's trying too hard, you know, to be edgy. Okay. And the, the, the biggest part is for sure um, the prince himself. It's like you said, yeah, self -de they dropped the self-deprecating comedy and the whimsical style mm. uh, that kind of made him really, uh, you know, fun to play as. And now he's just this cold-blooded emo killer, yeah. this dark tone that doesn't really translate well into the series, just kind of kind of arrogant and, and not likable. Mm. And uh, that like that, I didn't love. And and because there's, there is such a focus on on the gore and the boobs and the asses <laughs> and everything, like someone, someone clearly got the okay to make this an M-rated game. Yep. And we're just like, let's go as hard as we well, can. Well, yeah, I mean, it makes sense because at the time, like, what action games are selling, like, gangbusters in this this era? It's it's Devil May Cry and it's God of War. And those two games are both very gore-heavy. They're very they're very intense. They're very, they're very violent. And they needed to copy that or at least try and find a way to shoehorn that into this game. And development for Warrior Within actually began j before Sands of Time came out. And the plan mm. was always to make Warrior Within darker than Sands of Time. They actually wanted to make it a bit more of like a survival horror game, as opposed to like the 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 fairy tale kind of uh, okay. action, the fairy tale adventure game of Sands of Time. So they did keep the original vision of this game. Unfortunately, some of the developers from Sands of Time left uh, this development studio at this time to go work on Assassin's Creed. So some of the original developers of Sands of Time left, which is too bad. So some of the creative visionaries weren't there anymore. And sure. that was replaced with, with with different people. And that's what happens in, in a lot of uh, a lot of studios. One other big change, uh, for me at least, is that the voice actor for the prince also changed. Uh, mm, yeah, I mean, I could tell that for yeah. sure. Uh, not that the prince has a ton of lines anyways, no. but yeah, it, it it did make a difference. But it kind of worked in in one sense because he is the, the edgier, darker version. Right. And... I want to talk about the gameplay, of course. Mm. The gameplay uh, is uh, interesting in this sense because you're kind of revisiting places all the time. Okay. So it's a little bit like Prime Echoes and how there's – or Link to the Past as well. Mm -hmm. There's kind of two some, worlds. Some backtracking. Mm -hmm. Some backtracking because you're in the present of, of, of your one area and then you can actually go back to the past of the other. And things change based on what era that you're going uh, – that you're – traveling to mm. so i always like games like that i think it's a great way especially for sequels mm -hmm. um to create uh two different worlds without actually having to create two different worlds from a dev perspective yeah it is really difficult to make like a dark world and a light world in video games i know after reading about link to the past that a lot of other game developers will go to people who worked on link to the past asking for advice on how to do it and almost always they say don't like don't don't try and do it like it's really hard to to do that yeah. and and in a game like prince of persia where uh like you're trying to make a dark world and a light world while at the same time making time go backwards and forwards like like i have yep. much respect for anybody trying to make uh make something go in reverse uh backwards and forwards like we talked about uh, earlier in the episode with sands of time uh they really were trying to make this game go forwards and backwards up down left right and it came <laughs> out really well i just think that the only the biggest issue with warrior within is that it had to live in the shadow of sands of time which is too bad that just when a series peaks like that it's really hard to follow it up 
Yeah, yeah. I think yeah, that's that is honestly it, right? Yeah. Just I think if I play this game without playing Sands of Time, I would have had a different perspective. Mm-hmm. But just with playing Sands of Time, I honestly didn't love it. And mm-hmm. uh, also, it's hard. Like I was getting wrecked in just on normal mode um, for normal difficulty. <laughs> like enemies do so much health to you every time, yeah. especially bosses. So it was. Um, I found it. I found it quite difficult to keep going back to, in in that sense as well. And of course, we do have uh, a great little soundtrack almost, Neil, oh, yeah. and such a new metal uh, intro. Like, oh, it's so good. It's so good, dude. I love the music in this game. <laughs> Stuart Chatwood. Uh, we talked about him in Sands of Time. He comes back and he makes the overall soundtrack for the game. The fusion of Arabic Indian melodies mixed with, in this case heavy metal almost bringing like a doom soundtrack to it which i love the soundtrack also features two godsmack tracks mike like the band godsmack the the mm-hmm, yeah. new metal band love them from the 2000s <laughs> the, the band the song i stand alone and straight out of line there only thing that i think could have made this better would be if they added some limp biscuit in there i think that would be really cool maybe in the next prince of persia game that's what they'll do some bringing some uh some fred durst it's the second time you've said Limbiscuit today. You already said it earlier in the episode, Did I? I think. Oh, I got yeah. Limbiscuit on my mind today, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's really good, though. I, I, I like I like heavy soundtracks in video games. It doesn't exactly fit in a Prince of Persia game, but when it's this dark, <laughs> violent game, it kind of works, but it does take you out of it a little bit. Yeah, I think I think so. But yeah, you're right. It did fit. It did fit with Warrior Within. Mm. I just didn't love the aesthetic that Warrior Within was going for anyways. No, yeah, I guess that, that I guess that that's fair. So Prince of Persia Warrior Within was released on November 30th, 2004, developed by Ubisoft Montreal, published by Ubisoft. It's also on Game Boy Advance, PS2, Xbox, Windows, Mobile, iOS, PSP, and of course the BlackBerry. This game rates an 8 out of 10, priced today at around $25. This is an action-adventure hack-and-slash game. Mike, can you imagine playing this game on the BlackBerry? I'd just like to say one thing, though. I'd just like to say one thing. If you're playing a game other than Brick Breaker (laughs) on your BlackBerry in 2004, then you're doing it wrong. Right? Oh, dude, Brick Breaker, we used to play that on your dad's BlackBerry. That was such a fun game. I can't imagine playing a video game on an old cell phone. I can barely imagine playing a video game on a current cell phone. It's It's just not how I want to play games. I and I I would really like to see what kind of game this was. I mean, I guess it would have been like the GBA style, but like even you know, like even more compressed. Yeah, it would have been. How, how does Godsmack sound on this? <laughs> pretty good. I mean, the BlackBerry had a pretty decent speaker to it, but I would still love to hear like a like a Godsmack in the sound of like a Nokia phone ring, where it's just. Doo, 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 doo. <laughs> I think that'd be really really funny. But yeah, I we can go back. We can find a BlackBerry and uh, try and find a copy of that game. <laughs> Yeah, what do I buy physical editions of BlackBerry games? <laughs> there was no cartridge slot in the BlackBerry. But Mike, before we move on to our next game of the day, uh, I believe that Prince of Persia Sands of Time is featured in 1001 video games you must play before you die. So why don't you read a segment from that book for us? Very few classic properties survive the march of time in a tech-led industry. Sands of Time is one of the very greatest exceptions outside of Mario's whooping leaps. It's perhaps the greatest 3D game ever spawned by a 2D title. I'd maybe argue Metroid or Ocarina, but it's okay. This is a world inspired by the mythical associations of Persia, as much of the game's original game pits and spikes are. From both visual and gaming perspectives, it's a tour de force. There's wonderful ideas that elevate the game to the rank of the greats. You can rewind your mistakes. If there are any frustrating moments in the level design, you certainly don't realize they're there. You simply go back and try it again. The Prince's Journey is as much about tragedy as triumph, each victory tainted by the knowledge that you're 
only containing the evil you released. A 3D platformer with an inspired central mechanic, a work of artistic beauty, an evocative story told with restraint, and an inspirational journey? The Sands of Time is all these things and more. The combination creates a single wonderful adventure. That's beautiful. That book always does such a good job of uh, summarizing our words, but uh, doing it way better. <laughs> it really does, yeah. And I love the fact that they they did mention that this was, yeah, a 2D title that actually became a amazing 3D game, which is very rare for sure. Yeah, no, definitely. We barely even talked about that, but it is just such a great, it is one of the one of the great uh, transitions from 2D to 3D. Great point. And one more thing I'd like to say about the game before we move on to Warrior Within is that the Prince of Persia Sands of Time was the only Prince of Persia game on GameCube that used the Game Boy Advance, uh, the link cable, with your Game Boy Advance copy of Prince of Persia Sands of Time. Uh, If you hook up your Game Boy Advance to the console, your health bar will automatically increase. So you kind of have like a regenerating health meter uh, if you have both copies of the game, which is interesting. And it also Mm. unlocks the original version of Prince of Persia on the GameCube. So you can play the original game if you wanted to with both copies. So... One of the best uses of the Game Boy Advance link cable and really like basically DLC behind a very complicated paywall. Uh, kind of too bad that it's <laughs> that you have to own both copies and the Game Boy Advance link cable, but still really cool that they did that. Yeah, I, I mean, of course, we love being able to play uh, original games in new games. I think every game should have that for sure. Mm-hmm. And the re- restoring health is really interesting. I don't think I've ever heard of something like that happening with a, especially with a Game Boy Advance copy. Right. It may be happening in the game, but not as part of like a, a perk for owning both games and yeah, 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 yeah. Really interesting. Deceived by the treacherous vizier, I was led to unleash the Sands of Time curse upon the Sultan's kingdom. With little but an ancient dagger and a devious princess to aid me, I must undo my fatal mistake. Mine, a fight for survival, not glory. It's time to read what's on the back of the case. There's things written on the back of the case. Let's read them. And now we're reading the back of the case. All right, Mike, let's move on to our next game. But before we do, let's read the back of the case for Prince of Persia, Sands of Time. But first, Victor, hit us with that sweet jingle. Mike, I think when the prince went and uh, unleashed the sands of time here to get back at the vizier and uh, to, to to lift the curse on the sultan's kingdom, I think he may have reversed time in our podcast as well. Do you get that kind of feeling today? Yeah, a little bit. I think something seems off. Maybe Mercury's in retrograde again. Mm, maybe. Yeah, that could be it. <laughs> yeah, I think that's, what, that's, that's what's, what's going on today. Yeah, probably just something with my mind talking about time. Just feels a little different today, the episode. But uh, let's move right along here. Prince of Persia Sands of Time, Mike, it's a reboot of the series. And and as of 2014, this game has sold 14 million units. We don't have any sales from the past eight years. But still, even if, let's say, it sold an extra half a million to a million units in the last eight years, which is still pretty good, 14 million units for a game that came out in 2003. That's an incredible accomplishment. And I do remember this game coming out back in the day. It was on the cover of many magazines, especially PlayStation and Nintendo Power, I think. Uh, Did you play this game back in the day? I did, Neil. I did. Yeah, nice. this was a friend of mine had Prince of Persia and wanted to play it. Uh, and I remember this is one of the first games I played while watching someone else play it, you know, okay. and then I, I ended up playing it later myself. And I I remember thinking like, wow, look at these graphics. And they had it for <laughs> PS2. 
and I think the graphics were a bit better on the PS2 than GameCube for this game. Mm. But um, uh, yeah, I, I was blown away by it, and I didn't know anything about Prince of Persia, the franchise beforehand. Obviously, we said the series and said the franchise installments earlier, but uh, yeah, I didn't know about the earlier ones and how the franchise was basically dead right. at this point, and Ubisoft kind of brought it out of uh out of the dark and and reverse time in a way <laughs> uh, and i didn't know neil that they didn't uh the original creator jordan mechner mechner uh he actually didn't want anyone to touch it anymore he like was pretty sure that it was dead no exactly when when ubisoft bought or acquired prince of persia they actually acquired the catalog of prince of persia games they didn't mm-hmm. necessarily acquire the rights to create new games they still had to go to the series creator Jordan Mechner to to get the okay and to go through storyboarding and to make sure everything was fine. He still technically owned the rights to any new games, which is interesting. I don't know if we've ever really talked about that before uh, with a video game franchise, but the pre-production for Sands of Time took a very long time and it showed it, it showed with the final product, but before the game even went into production, they spent 14 months figuring out how the game was going to work, which is 4 months more than expected. So they had to go back and forth a lot with the series creator to make sure everything was up to snuff, I guess, up to his standards, which he had very high standards for games, rightfully so. He he made a lot of great Prince of Persia games back in the, the 80s on the, on the PC. Mm-hmm. Those games were very ahead of their time as a 2D platformer. They were more like a 2D cinematic adventure. Very neat, which we talked about with the, when we went over the series. Um, so I completely understand why he wanted a lot of care and effort to be put into the game, especially since... The last time he put out a game, Prince of Persia 3D, did not go super well. I think he really wanted the series to come back strong. They definitely did come out strong with that. And what a great time to be uh, Ubisoft because they were just coming out with Prince of Persia Sands of Time. And they were also working on Tom Clancy's Splinter Cell at the exact same time as this game. So they were ready to come out with guns a-blazing on the GameCube and PS2. Yeah, honestly, like this was a good time to be Ubisoft for sure. Yeah, yeah, they they kept it going into the 7th Gen too. But uh, yeah, they, they were just on fire with looking for influence for what to do with this series like of course they went back to playing the old uh the old prince of persia games but a couple of other things that they took uh, influence from was uh ico the playstation 2 game for the environments Mm. uh they watched crouching tiger hidden dragon and the matrix for combat they played tony hawk pro skater for acrobatics uh the team the entire development team read stories from 1001 nights which is a collection of middle eastern short stories which influenced the original game uh that's what mechner read to create the original prince of persia and the oddest one of all is that they got inspiration for the uh, the rewind function, which was which is what made Prince of Persia: Sands of Time so popular, reversing time, doing things backwards, uh, was Donald Duck going quackers. <laughs> oh my God, we talked about that uh, quite a few weeks ago. Yeah, with yeah. Uh, Donald Duck and how that game is not good in a no. lot of ways. And yeah, because he wanted to, or like the team wanted to uh, rewind after making a mistake rather than restarting the entire level, mm-hmm. which I think is. It's just such a cool thing. So yeah, let's talk about like that mechanic, Neil. Like like that's such a cool mechanic to put in a video game. It is reversing time. I I honestly don't know if I've ever played a game that does it quite like this. Like when you make a mistake, instead of what most video games do when you die and you make a mistake is you these days especially you you sit on a pause screen or on a loading screen <laughs> and you wait for the level to reload and you go you get kicked back maybe five seconds if you're playing an older game or a harder game you go back multiple minutes if not hours of progress and you have to start again like a dark souls game but this game let you make a mistake and then literally reverse time go backwards and try it again which is really crazy like they had to go the qa for this game must have been unreal oh the qa was unreal the research and development in this was unreal this is 
more studios and more developers and just everyone really need to create games like this in this way. Like the amount of time that was spent on planning how this game was going to work yep. and then researching and trying to get inspiration from Arabic culture and everything like that, you know, and, and ancient Persia like mm-hmm. that. That's why this game looks and feels so realistic in a lot of ways for even for a 2003 game. Like this has no business looking like this. No. And, and I like, uh, you know, sure. We, we when were playing Nightfire or something. We feel like we're, we're, you know, <laughs> in the game or for playing Spider-Man games. We feel like we're Spider-Man, but this game maybe more than any other really makes me feel part of the environment in every way. It does. And it, it makes you feel like you're in one of those stories from a thousand and one nights. Like it's yeah. very, it's very, um, true to its influences. And I love that. And the games, the engine that the game uses is the Jade engine, which is the, which was originally designed for beyond good and evil. So Ubisoft just putting that engine to good work. And I think that that was a, a smart move. The game looks beautiful. The combat is all super smooth. Like I love the, I love how the Prince fights. It looks incredible. And what's, what's amazing is that the development team for this game was never larger than 65 people, which I love going back and looking at the development for older games, just compared to games of today, which take five, sometimes 10 years to develop, sometimes multiple studios, hundreds of people. I love going back to these games that are all-time classics that were made by a small office of people like that just love the game. I, you know, like I always say, Neil, uh, the the best games ever made are ones that you can envision one person creating the entire thing, yep. and you know a team working as a cohesive entity almost, mm-hmm. and that's what this game is for sure. Yeah, definitely. I can imagine that it was kind of scary though at first. You know, they're coming out with this this franchise. They were trying to revamp this franchise that had been dead for a few years. And actually, when the game first came out, sales were initially slow and reviews were tepid. Like it wasn't like it was. It wasn't selling like gangbusters on the first week or anything, which the later games in the series do pretty well uh, with sales. I'm trying to think of another game though, where like the game came out and was not so was not so successful, and then later became a critical darling of selling 14 million units. The only game that I could think of off the top of my head was a game like Earthbound, where mm. it came out to so-so sales, so-so reviews, and then as the years go on, it becomes almost like this cult classic. Like, Sands of Time is on a lot of people's top 10 or top 20 games of this generation. Can you think of any games like that, Mike? That's that's hard to say because I can think of tons of games that have become cult classics that didn't sell well. But this is a game that didn't sell well at first and then ended up selling right. a massive amount. So. That's that's a, a very unique situation because that's a situation where the publisher believes in the game mm-hmm. more than anything, right? Because usually what happens, a game doesn't sell well, publisher, you know, washes their hands of it, mm-hmm. uh, and the developers often do too, or the developers are stuck with having trying or having publishing rights usually at that point, and um, then the game kind of just dies or goes into obscurity or becomes a cult classic, but doesn't, you know, obviously sell that much. So right. this was, uh, got to give a lot of credit to Ubisoft because they believed in this game, you know, mm-hmm. wholly. They believed that this was a game that they put a lot of time into. There's a lot of effort put in and a lot of love and care. And they knew that, you know what, like, no, just wait, like it, it will be good. Like people yeah. will buy it at some point. And something that I was actually surprised not to find a lot about but something I definitely was thinking of when I was doing research for this episode was think of when this came out, Neil. Mm. This was 2003. Okay. What had just happened? In the world, well, like we're two years removed from 9-11, but. <laughs> yeah, well, no, that's like where I I'm guess going the with war, this. Like the war in, war in Iraq. Iraq. Yeah. yeah. And and yeah. if you're, you know, 
uh, for Americans, that's kind of the, the first thing on your mind uh, is the war in Iraq that's currently going on. Mm. And uh, this is a story all about the Middle East and, and everything. And there's a lot of pan, you know, panic around uh, uh, around any of that culture, unfortunately, mm. at the time. Right. And it was almost like taboo to talk about uh, Arabic culture at all, which was horrible. And so yeah. uh, then you come out with this uh, game about ancient Persia and uh like that was, I think, a really risky move, and and good on Ubisoft for actually following through, and not and having the balls to to put this out, and of course was was fantastic and worked out well. But yeah, I just was, I was thinking of that. I was like, oh, 2003, this would have been one Bush evaded Iraq. This would have been on everyone's yeah. mind, and then you have Prince of Persia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, something that celebrates Middle Eastern mythology as opposed to where other developers were going at this time. This must have been around when a game like a franchise like Call of Duty was starting to go modern warfare and going into the Middle East and fighting in the Afghanistan war. So yeah, that's a really good point. I hadn't thought about that. It is risky for them to, instead of going the violent path of being in the Middle East to going more of a, it's not a pacifist game to say the least, like it's, it's still a violent game, but at least it's not like fighting against Americans or anything. You're fighting within Persia and in ancient Persia too. Yeah. Yeah. It just, it just like if uh, I'm a, you know, a normal American consumer in 2003 with everything Mm -hmm. that the news is giving me it's like oh arabic like arab you know culture everything bad you know that's yeah. i'm not going to uh, i'm not going to buy this game right that's kind of what was being peddled at the time so yeah maybe that's one of the reasons why it didn't sell super well at the time but as reviews started coming out and as people's ideologies started to shift again uh maybe that's that's what helped the sales as like a slow burn you know 11 years to get to 14 million units plus the the remakes and the ports that it's had i'm sure that that's helped a ton mm-hmm. one, one of the standouts for me from the prince of persia Sands of Time game and the series in general is the music. I really love the music in these games. It's very good. Composed by Stuart Chatwood. He is in a Canadian rock band, Mike, by the name of The Tea Party. Have you ever heard of this band? I haven't, no. Yeah, I listened to them while I was uh, doing research (laughs) for the show. They're not bad. They're a little bit like an easy grunge. That's kind of how I call them. Like, I I can listen to it. Like, it's not like Creed or anything where it's a little bit much after a while. Uh, I would recommend it. Like, they're, they're, they're most streamed songs. Pretty good. Okay, sure. <laughs> like yeah. you know, the Creed after a little while, after a little, after a couple of seconds, after a couple of, after a couple of, uh, after a couple of lines, I need to switch the songs. Unlike my brother, who absolutely adores Creed, but uh, they basically took rock elements and mixed it with Middle Eastern music melodies, uh, along with uh, instruments um, like the uh, tabla and strings, along with vocal tracks from Cindy Gomez and Mariam Toller. Not super familiar with them, but uh, the vocals are really good. Like I do like the um, the melodies that they have going with the music. I think it's really nice. Uh, the sound effects in the game are also really good. Uh, they worked with a sound company by the name of Dane Tracks. Um, so most of the sound effects were done in Ubisoft Montreal along with the music. So the mixing is just so well done. Uh, while you're like fighting with swords and everything like that, you can hear the like the strings and the orchestra in the background. It's it's a really well put together cinematic experience when it comes to the sound design. Oh, for sure, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And the dialogue as well, like very well written. There's also a lot of it, and not even all of it that was written made made the uh, made the cut. Apparently, there were over 1,000 lines of dialogue written for the game, and half of it was cut. So, <laughs> despite all the cutscenes in this game and all of the the voice acting, not all of it even made it to the game, which is too bad. That's, I mean, I I could tell there is so much dialogue in this game, and like well done too, like you said, uh, and even just the the cutscenes look fresh. They look good for 2003. Yep. Like, honestly, looks better than Warrior Within, honestly, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it does. It, it's weird how that happened where the first game looks looks the best <laughs> and reviews the best. It's really funny. Yeah. Uh, and the voice of the prince is voiced by Yuri Lowenthal, who uh, gamers of today would know him. He still does voice acting in video games. Uh, his most notable role recently is he voices Peter Parker in the new Spider-Man games. Oh, wow. That's cool. Yeah. You can kind of hear it, too, like when you hear him talking. He does have a bit of an accent to him, obviously. He's putting on an accent for this game. But you can sort of hear his Peter Parker voice when you listen to it. They Hmm. unfortunately change his voice in the later games, Warrior Within, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But, yeah, uh, good good casting for for the prince as well. Yeah, great casting and just, like... They did a great job with his character. Mm-hmm. Just like they not being too edgy, not being too dark, but also, you know, not being too like stupid and whimsical. Like he's right. he's got he's like walks a good balance of a yeah. of of a main character that you want to have. The Prince of Persia Sands of Time was released on November 18th, 2003, two years after the GameCube came out. It's developed by Ubisoft Montreal, published by Ubisoft. It's also on Game Boy Advance, PS2, Xbox, Windows, and mobile. Rates a 9 out of 10, priced today at around $20, and this is an action adventure. So, Mike, we have a lot of cool games to talk about today, but before we jump into those, let's talk about Prince of Persia as a series, since those are the first games we're going to be talking about. What are your memories of the Prince of Persia series? Well, I I definitely remember the uh, Sands of Time, the the first game in this uh, trilogy that we're going to be talking about. Uh, I think it was kind of everywhere. You know, everyone had it. Uh, it was a huge game at the time. People were talking about the combat, talking about the the setting and everything, and and the graphics as well. At the time, people were like, "Oh wow, this looks so cool. This looks so realistic." <laughs> and of course, the environment just being, I don't know, so encompassing. Yeah, definitely. I remember when the games came out, specifically seeing like the them on the cover of magazines. Yeah. Uh, but I never got into renting them or playing them at friends' houses. I don't know anybody that had them, had any of these games. So unfortunately, I never got a chance to play them. Most of them, if not all of them, are single-player experiences, where when I was young, I was playing mostly multiplayer games. So that didn't help me getting into it. Uh, I, I really started to hear about these games back in 2013 when I was getting back into uh video game collecting specifically on the GameCube. And I remember Sands of Time being on a lot of people's like hidden gems list on the GameCube or like like I really like to find lists of games to pick up that aren't Mario and Metroid and 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 Pokemon and Zelda. Uh, I'm really into finding those types of lists. And Prince of Persia Sands of Time is always the top of everyone's list of like an action adventure game to pick up after you've played the Zeldas. Now, of course, is uh, is Prince of Persia Sands of Time the movie on hidden <laughs> hidden gem lists? Oh no, no, it is not. Unfortunately, the Jake Gyllenhaal classic from 2010 uh, is not on most people's lists or movie watchers lists. That movie actually has a really good cast. Like I said, Jake Gyllenhaal, Ben Kinsley, Alfred Molina, uh, but not critically well-received. It currently holds a 37% on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, So have you seen it, Neil? No, no, no. Have you? So Yeah, so uh, my friend and I were actually trying to watch a a lot of Jake's movies, and I think we've seen most of them at this point. But one of the ones that she did not want to watch was Prince of Persia. Mm. She's like, I know it's going to be bad. I just don't want to even, you know, be a part of this. I was like, that's fine. So I watched it by myself. And <laughs> that's sad. yeah, it's it's horrible. I didn't, I didn't pay money to see it. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it it was it was bad. Uh, there's like the just everything. Honestly, everything about it was bad. I think one of the worst parts about it was like almost the whitewashing of it. Okay. Just like having all these like white characters be these like Arabic characters. That was like really unsettling. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it, it didn't work for 
for uh for the plot like they they tried to go a little bit of the video game plot but then just abandoned it halfway through like it every, everything everything is wrong about it it's it's a bad movie it also feels too removed from the Sands of Time game. I get that the Prince of Persia games were still coming out in 2010. We were starting to get spinoffs and remakes or remasters on PlayStation 3 of the uh, the trilogy that we're going to be talking about today, specifically Sands of Time, Warrior Within, and Two Thrones. That's when I started to meet people that were playing these games on the PS3. Uh, I think that those remasters are actually pretty decent. But uh, yeah, I, I feel like that this this movie was just a little bit too late. It feels like Prince of Persia nowadays could probably come out as like an HBO series or something, which feels like the lazy thing to say now where it's like, oh, it's not a movie, but it probably could be a good Netflix series. I feel mm-hmm. like Prince of Persia probably could be like there aren't too many Persian series of anything like we're getting a lot of fantasy uh, stories coming out with like The Witcher and Lord of the Rings and Game of Thrones is is coming back it seems like with uh, with Elden Ring so Prince of Persia is probably a good candidate for being on one of these streaming services but as a 2010 movie starring Jake Gyllenhaal I didn't have high hopes for it back then either so it doesn't quite surprise me that it holds a 37% on Rotten Tomatoes but it's a far cry away from uh, from what we got with the Prince of Persia games which originally came out in the 80s and 90s that's right Neil the series starts off with uh, Prince of Persia in 89, ended up being remade in 2007 as Prince of Persia Classic. Uh, We also have Shadow in the Flame that came out in 94. We have Prince of Persia 3D that came out in 99. And uh, like we're going to be talking about for Tomb Raider and Pitfall, this was kind of the crossroads. Uh, What do they do? Like We have these games that have come out that have some acclaim to them. And uh, they're, you know, quite old games too. So how do you actually make this work? Uh, Sands of Time comes out in 2003 uh, to, to huge acclaim and will be remade uh, probably by 2023. That's what Ubisoft says. So who knows what's going on with that? <laughs> yeah. uh, Warrior Within, of course, in 04, Two Thrones in 05. And then we get a second reboot with Prince of Persia. I hate when games do this when they just call Keep it. Rebooting. Just, well, no, no. I have no problem with reboots, but I hate when they just call it the same name again. Oh, I see what we, you're saying. We have Prince yeah. of Persia 2008, and then we have the Forgotten Sands in 2010. And that was the last game that original game that we got in the prince of persia uh, series so there's not that many prince of persia games neil no 15 all in all but that counts remakes and spin-offs yeah. uh currently uh the, the series has been developed by eight different studios published by five different companies it's been on 36 different consoles though wow. in the last 30 three years now so that's a lot of games and critically and commercially speaking uh sands of time was the series peak selling 14 million copies which we're going to be talking about in a little bit um but even even today in 2022 the prince of persia name still holds a lot of weight especially for gamers of our age where prince of persia was a big name back in the day as an action game like it was it 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 was very high selling The, the games were coming out on an annual basis they were getting remade on current gen hardware at the time on the ps3 and xbox 360 so i think it coming back in the next year or two it can probably do pretty well i think it'll definitely find its niche much much like devil may cry 5 did when it came out a couple of years ago um, or like the resident evil remakes coming out i think prince of persia could find a similar audience with those games i think so too neil i think so too but uh, Mm -hmm. prince of persia it died honestly for one reason do you know what that is i don't why don't you tell the listeners it's, uh, well, I mean, part of it is the, the movie, but mostly <laughs> it's Assassin's Creed. Mm-hmm. And we're going to be talking about that in a bit, that Assassin's Creed really is the successor to the Prince of Persia series. That's a really good point. I hadn't, I, I had thought about that when I made notes with Assassin's Creed taking a lot of the wind out of Prince of Persia's sails. So uh, I'm really excited to talk about these games. 
Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 91 of the GameCube is Cool podcast. New episode every Thursday on all the major podcast services. We are the number one GameCube podcast on the internet. We're here to look back on all 555 North American GameCube games, one by one, sometimes 12 by 12. So far, we have covered 411 games. You can visit thegamecubeiscool.com to check out all the things we've been working on. The website was developed by our very own Mike Lane. That's me. That's him. Last week, we talked about Sonic and Shadow to celebrate the release of Sonic the Hedgehog 2, now in theaters. And I think we can both agree that that is probably the best video game movie of all time, Mike. Am I right? Well, it's better than Prince of Persia, which we'll be talking about uh, soon. (laughs) But honestly, Neil, I think it's maybe the best movie of all time. Wow. That's that's saying a lot. You really like Idris Elba. (laughs) I I think Idris Elba... Uh, puts on an Oscar-winning performance here. Just incredible. Uh, probably, again, one of the greatest movies ever made. Uh, Jim Carrey definitely also going to get nominated there. I think Jim Carrey is going to host the Oscars next year dressed as Eggman. <laughs> I think I think so. I think so. We'll have to see. This week, we're covering some excellent action-adventure games. Of course, Tomb Raider, Pitfall, and Prince of Persia, The Sands of Time, which has a weird effect of uh, reversing time of everything it touches. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is weird. Again, yeah, something in the air today. Something there indeed. But Mike, I think it's time for our favorite segment. What do you think? Yes, that's right, Neil. I think it's time for the mailbag. Ladies and gentlemen, if you want to be featured in our mailbag segment, leave us a review or write into us. Let us know a memory that we unlocked, something that we got wrong, or just let us know how you found the show and how you like to listen to us on your night shifts, drives to work. We love to hear from you. Just like Mike, who wrote into us today. Yes, Neil, Jerry S. from New York City uh, mailed us a letter, an actual physical letter, no email for this guy. Uh, he says, hey guys, love the show. What's the deal with the GameCube? It's not even a cube. Hmm. That sounds like the style of a joke from, from, from somebody that I, I know very well. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, also says, uh, P.S., stop stealing my bits, uh, with uh, three exclamation marks, actually. Hmm. Jerry S. must be a big big fan of the exclamation point. I don't know what Jerry S. is getting at. We're stealing no one's bits. And, Mike, do you think it, it, No. It, that couldn't be Jerry Seinfeld. No. Well, I mean, Jerry, New York. No, no, no. It also says drop dead inside the, the envelope, too. Drop dead? <laughs> yeah. That's so, a little harsh. That's a little harsh, Neil. Uh, well, Jerry S., thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate it. Uh, not sure how you're getting our podcast and simultaneously sending paper mail. Uh, and my so, address. And your address. Yeah, how did he get your address? Well, where, <laughs> is that public knowledge, Mike? I don't even know your address. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Jerry S., so much for writing in. And listeners, remember to leave us a rating or a review. We will read it on next week's show. And, of course, listeners, if you want to write into us on Patreon, we have you can support the show on Patreon at the $1 or the $5 a month tier. Love to uh, love to have those patrons over there supporting the show. If you support us at the $5 or above level, you get your name read in the credits and the option to submit an opening topic. Uh, we don't have an opening topic today, but uh, hopefully we'll have one for next week. So, Mike, I was at a comedy show the other night, and uh, there was someone sitting behind us who did not know how to act in a comedy show, uh, basically yelling before she was laughing. <laughs> have you ever experienced anything like this at a comedy show? Sorry. Yeah, what? <laughs> yeah, like, like doing... Yeah, like, like, I, like I, a I yell. Even... I don't want to do it on the, on the podcast because that's gonna just... going to break the mic. It's horrible for people's ears. Some people are falling asleep to our voices, of course, but <laughs> basically a shriek that would transition into a laugh. I don't know who, <laughs> how you learn how to do that, where that comes from. I sincerely hope she's listening to this. I doubt she is. It just got me thinking, like, how 
why is there not like a screening process before you go into a comedy show? Because you can't fix someone's laugh. I totally get that. She also had a very obnoxious laugh. Yeah. I get that. Obnoxious laughs are difficult. I feel like we can sit them in like a silent box somewhere in a comedy <laughs> club. But do you think that there should be some kind of a screening process before you go to a comedy show? Well, so for me, going to comedy shows, I think the one of the best parts about comedy shows is the comedian making fun of people sure. you know, that are in the audience because that's what I would love to do. Because as a comedian, you have free reign to judge everybody mm. around you. And I'm very upset that uh, no one judged her on her laugh. I guess she was farther away. We were pretty far back. We weren't like right up. If we were closer to the stage, I think she was definitely going to be She'd get roasted. <laughs> cannon fodder for, for comedians to, to, to roast her probably. But yeah, everybody in our section was definitely roasting her in their thoughts. And after – they left really quick too after the show ended and everyone was like looking at each other like, wow, that was brutal. We did have to – or my girlfriend did have to turn around and the girl next to us had to turn around and tell her to like please stop yelling. Like we can you know, understand that you're having a good time. But it, uh, it was very cringy. And, uh, oh, that's so cringy. It's just too bad because it's like how, you can't fix that. Like you can't you, you can't correct it. Like no one's going to kick you out for laughing. But she was yelling like she was at a Limp Biscuit concert back in 2001, dude. Oh, wow. Limp Bizkit. Yeah. Well, that was probably the last time you'll mention that for a while. Yeah, I'm not going to talk about <laughs> I won't talk about Limp Bizkit again today. Just leaving it, leaving it at one. That's fine. Yeah, that sounds good. But speaking of Limp Bizkit and music, Mike, I want to talk to you about concerts and specifically bands that never play a song live. Uh, I find mm. it really interesting when I'm listening to like a live CD in a band or I'm at a show and a band says, we've never played this song live before. How does that happen where a band gets to like 10 years into their career and they haven't played a song off their second album before? That so when you first think about it it definitely is weird but then you actually are like wait well i guess there's a, quite a few songs in someone's catalog that are just not good concert songs i guess you know there's like like a slower song just like a really downbeat song that wouldn't work um mm. especially if you're like you know curating your concert to to make sure that you have you know all the bangers here you got some random songs here i i do like bands that really change up their their set lists yeah. Mountain Goats are one for the, that I love, for example, who they always have the, the last five songs. They're always the same, the last five. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the songs you know, so it's good. Uh, but before that, the the first 15 songs are usually just completely random. That's and great. It, and it's because they just have such a huge catalog to draw from. Mm. And that I love because I'm like, okay, like I know I know some of these songs, some of them are bangers, but I'm waiting for the, you know, I'm waiting for the end. And so I think that's what how like all bands should do it, honestly, in my opinion. Yeah, it's 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 just weird to me to think like in the ten years like I'm I'm just impressed like I get it like if they haven't played the song live it just came out on an album two years ago yeah, yeah maybe there's been a pandemic or they haven't gone on tour for some reason totally get that but it's just weird to me like when I I don't remember the band I was listening to now but like the album was at least ten years old and they were like yeah we've never played this song live before it's like you never had like an acoustic concert or like a five or a ten year anniversary show or like anything that like gave you an excuse to play this song. It just throws me off that like a band that's that old could go so long without uh, without ever playing a song live. It's like you never wanted to try it once. Well, you know what's crazy, Neil, is there's actually a lot of you know examples of this just in pop culture. Um, REM, Shiny Happy People, a very mm. famous song, uh, only played live twice. Why did they just not like it? Uh, yeah, they well, they didn't love the song, but um, it was also about. I think it was about like uprising in China or something. I forget the exact mm. story of it. And yeah, it's um, he he is he claims that he's indifferent to it, but he clearly doesn't like, doesn't want to 
uh, play or want to talk about it. Okay. Uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit was a famous one for Nirvana that they never wanted to play sure. uh, live. Elton John refused to play your song for years. Like So there's, there's that <laughs> where it's like your big song that you, you don't want to play anymore. And honestly, mm-hmm. I, I have a lot of respect for artists who don't want to play their big songs. Uh, I saw the White Stripes and they didn't play Seven Nation Army. And some people wow. were – well, I saw Jack White and he didn't play Seven Nation Army. And people were like, oh, I can't believe you didn't play it. And I was like, honestly, good for him. I don't need to hear Seven Nation Army ever again in my life. I know, right? Like you hear it in every sporting <laughs> event. You hear it like on the every hard rock station. Like we've seen Streetlight Manifesto or I've seen Streetlight Manifesto at least – four or five times and never seen them play point counterpoint which is their yeah. biggest song like toke hates that song yep there was one acoustic show that i went to with friend of the show dan and Braden, and he was taking requests at like he had his little <laughs> acoustic guitar it was like a campfire show and and he was like i'm taking requests now and people just yell song names and someone said point counterpoint and he was like no next song and like <laughs> didn't play it that was the only one that he didn't play and yeah I, I respect it too. It, it, it does go both ways too. Like where you go to a show, like I think of a band like Green Day, where you can call that set list from a mile away. Like it's almost annoying how yeah. how predictable their set list is. Um, like they'll play all of the songs off American Idiot. They're, they basically play all of their music video songs, all their singles. Yeah. And I, I'm not a huge fan of, of that either. Uh, we'll be seeing Billy Talent in a few weeks. So I'm excited to see what comes out of that show. But yeah, super predictable set list. Just, just, kind, of, just kind of grind my gears. I want to talk about a video game topic, though, Mike, before we start the episode. What do you think of mirror modes in Mario Kart games? I've been playing a lot of Mario Kart right now. Uh, well, how do you feel about mirror modes in video games? I've been playing a lot of Mario Kart 8 Deluxe. The DLC just came out, uh, and I'm really enjoying that. And I'm, I'm playing the mirror mode uh, versions of the courses, and it just blows my mind that they were able to make the tracks go forward and backward. How do you feel about reversing reversing things in video games? I think it's really cool. I think more people need to do mirror modes. Like, mm. I, uh, do Kart's you now? <laughs> it's the only thing that I can think of that does a mirror mode. I've never seen mirror mode, you know, replicated anywhere else before. Uh, and so I, I always thought mirror mode was such a cool thing when I, I guess, was it first in Double Dash? I think it was. Mirror mode in a racing game? I think so. That was the that was what made it really popular was Double Dash. They also do it in N64, don't oh, they? they do. Uh... It's an unlockable mode in N64, but Double Dash is the popular one, though, especially like with that the case where Luigi's hat is backwards. I think that that's an error for sure. Uh, one of the things that I think about, though, when I think of mirror mode and things being in reverse is the famous episode of Seinfeld where every segment is done in reverse and they do little bits about like how uh, like how Kramer's lollipop is getting bigger or uh, just <laughs> other little gags like that, like things going backwards. Yeah, I like that. I like that, Neil. I, 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 think, I, I think more people need to do that. It's a cool concept. It is a cool concept, but it completely breaks my brain trying to figure it out. It makes my brain hurt, for yeah, sure. Definitely. Neil, did you know that there could actually be a way to time travel uh, very soon? Maybe. Oh, oh, we're, we're live. Oh, well, Mike, thank you so much for joining me today. And I just want to warn you that before we get started, uh, my building does do random fire alarm tests on the last days of the month. Uh, so there's a very small, very small chance uh, mm. that it may go off while we're recording, uh, but I think we'll be okay. Okay, yeah, I think we'll be okay, too. I I honestly doubt it. Yeah, it's not going to happen. Yeah, it won't happen. The GameCube, GameCube was cool. Hosted by Mike Lane and Neil Gilbert. GameCube. 
GameCube Was Cool podcast is a recorded and produced show from Toronto, Canada. If you want to support the show, you can go to patreon.com forward slash the GameCube Was Cool to find our $1 and $5 a month tiers. Special thank you to our Patreon supporters for the month of April. Ira Bell, Dean Donian, Jed Winters, Joey Sirico, Resident Evil Collector on Instagram, Tristan Pantorado, Wilshire, White Win Wolf L, Kara Link, Marty Thompson, and Double Ugly. Awesome. I'm guessing it. He never hit with our head in it. It helps, he goes.